Welcome to episode 7 of the Pip Permaculture Podcast. This time around, Pip editor Robin Rosenfeld speaks with Dr. Alicia Belgrove, a seaweed expert from Deakin University in Warrnambool, Victoria, about her passion for marine plants and practical ways we can incorporate their wondrous properties into our everyday life. Enjoy. So today we're speaking with Alicia Belgrove, a marine biologist at Deakin University and phycologist, which is a seaweed, someone who studies seaweed. So thanks, Alicia, for having a chat to me today. Thanks very much, Robin. Nice to be with you. And we're actually talking to Alicia in Japan at the moment. So what are you That's doing right, over in maybe. Japan? I'm over here for four months sabbatical at the Shimano Marine Research Centre in uh, for the University of Tsukuba, just Great. southwest of Tokyo. Okay, so why um, seaweed? Where, how did you first get into seaweed and where did that passion start? A bit accidentally, really. Um, I, in my undergrad at uni, I was studying, um, I did a double major in zoology and botany and in my second year, I became really interested um, particularly in the marine environment and the biota that lived in the marine environment. And I sort of then scrambled to do as much marine biology as I could within the general science degree that I'd chosen. So, uh, but it, because I was doing a double major in botany and zoology, I had a bit of a different perspective on um, the interactions that are occurring between plants and animals. and and most marine biologists at the time were actually either zoology trained or botany trained and it was actually relatively uncommon to have people doing both botany and zoology even though the two subjects obviously go quite well together yeah so i kind of um was interested in in ecology marine ecology more broadly and ended up uh focusing primarily on seaweeds mostly because nobody else was really doing it at the time mm. And I could see that it was a a real knowledge gap um, for, you know, understanding what's going on in our marine environment. Obviously, the, the seaweeds and in, in particular, the large habitat forming seaweed, on which a lot of my research focuses, are really important um, components of ecosystems and actually in many cases define the ecosystem themselves. So we need to understand the... Uh, the biology and the ecology of these species in order to understand how we might be mucking that up by doing things like putting in harbours or throwing sewage out into the ocean and those sorts mm. of things. Yeah. So in your own personal life, how, 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 is sea, how do you incorporate seaweed and how are you using seaweed in your day-to-day -day life? As you said, I'm... Actually, sitting here in Japan at the moment, uh, in in the marine station where I did postdoctoral research. So after I finished my PhD, I came to Japan and I lived for three years. And and the focus of my work there was was purely ecological, looking at um, trying to understand the influences of, on early life history stages of um, seaweed and how that affects the the populations and what's going on in the communities. But obviously, part of being uh, in Japan, I became exposed to seaweeds in a whole new way and actually started eating them on a, on a regular basis. And 
Um, I've only been back in Japan now for a bit more than a week and I think I've had seaweed for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day that I've been here. So mm. it, it's a, a very different um, relationship that people in Japan have with the seaweed compared to to us in Australia on, on a day-to-day basis. So after I spent three years living here um, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and then came back to Australia. And I guess I um, continued to incorporate seaweed into my diet. And what became pretty obvious to me while I was living here was that there was fantastic health benefits um, associated with eating seaweed regularly. So so what, what are those? One of the first things I noticed when I moved to starting more seaweed and um, drink and in, and also drinking green tea was I immediately started to lose weight. And then mm. when I started looking, and I didn't necessarily associate the two things, but actually when you look into the research, um, regular consumption of seaweed has been shown to reduce obesity and reduce the associated um, uh, health impacts of obesity, such as high blood pressure and uh, susceptibility to diabetes and these sorts of things. So they're, they're not insignificant um, health benefits mm. from regular consumption of seaweed. It's also um, consumption of some seaweeds has been shown to reduce the um, likelihood of Alzheimer's, but also to um, have the possibility to reverse the effect of Alzheimer's once, once it has onset. Oh, really? And that's particularly associated with a um, product known as fucoidin that's associated with brown seaweeds. Okay. Such as chickpeas and things. And how does that work? Um, I can't uh, – I'm not actually uh, up with the biological mechanisms of how that works in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that hasn't been my particular piece of research, so yeah. I'm not – I want to give you a detailed yeah. explanation. You make something up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, in Australia where it's not kind of on the menu everywhere and how do you go about incorporating it into your diet? Is it Do you go and collect it yourself or do you buy it dried or what's the best way so, to kind of get access to it? Yeah, I guess the way we generally eat it in – well, the way we generally have been eating it um, – in Australia is in a in sort of Japanese cuisine still and we've been purchasing products that are imported from um, primarily Asia and different different Asian countries so China Japan Korea are the major producers of um, of seaweeds for as vegetables and then Indonesia Philippines are also important producers for um, seaweeds for the carrageenan extracts that are um, taken out and provide um, gelling capability used in a whole lot of food product, processed food products. Mm. But um, I guess it was probably after the the Japanese uh, Tohoku earthquake and the Fukushima incident that we really started to think more seriously about the... um, the source of our the seaweed that we're eating, uh, and mm. you know, became potentially a bit concerned about the um, the safety of that, at least in the short term. Mm. And 
I guess a series of um, coincidences led us to start thinking about, okay, well, what, we're, we're living in a part of the world that's got the highest biodiversity of seaweeds on earth. Um, mm. There's got to be some things out there that, that are good to eat. So, um, And are you talking about Australia? Is, or... Yeah, in Australia. So yeah. in southeastern Australia in particular. And yeah. so... We started to actually explore that initially through a crowdfunded um, research campaign. So, where we did some um, we did some taste trials with some um, human guinea pigs that volunteered their oh, yeah. their palates to us, and uh, then we've also been um, had a, a few students doing some various work. So, looking at uh, one of my PhD students started as an honors project looking at um, nutritional value and she's continuing on as, as a PhD where she's exploring the nutritional value of a range of seaweeds looking at things like um, protein fatty acids so these are your, you know your, your good omega-3 long-chain fatty acids for example mm. and um, dietary minerals but also the potential for contamination by heavy metals one of the things that about one of the great possibilities about um, harvesting and either by foraging or, or by um, sort of commercial scale aquaculture in Australia is that on a global scale we've got pretty clean waters so in theory seaweeds should be amongst the cleanest in the world uh, mm. but you know we actually have to demonstrate that as well so we're doing some work to actually look at the potential for contamination of seaweeds around urbanised shores in particular. And as we talked about when we were writing the the article for for PIP, you know, we know that seaweeds can accumulate metals. So, without the um, availability of any data, it, it's wise to avoid collecting them from highly urbanised areas and areas of point source pollution, such as around river mouths or around sewage outfalls or other you know drain ash storm water drains and those sorts of things mm. because these are the sorts of um, point sources that often bring metals down into our waterways as well mm. and it's the um, the beauty of seaweed is that it does attract it does soak up all the nutrients in the water around it which gives it the high nutrient value but I guess on the other hand yeah. it's also soaking up the negative um, the bad things in the water too. So I guess that's yeah, what you've got to be so aware of. Basically, seaweeds um, are what's known as they're isotonic with seawater. So they have the same, the the fluid within their tissues is the same level of salinity as that of the seawater. So they don't lose water to the environment and they don't take it up. They just in balance with the seawater in terms of salinity. But right. they do that by actually selectively uptaking um, particular ions that are less toxic. So, so um, seawater has got high levels of sodium and chloride, but these become toxic to most biological organisms in, in high levels, So, which is mm. why we don't want to eat too much table salt. Um, mm. But you can get saltiness from taking up other ions that are, are less toxic, and that's essentially what seaweeds do. And so those ions essentially become our dietary minerals. And um, because the seaweeds uh, need to maintain their um, osmolarity or their 
the amount of the relationship between the amount of water that comes in and out of the cells in relation to the salinity of the seawater that they're surrounded in and the, um, the salinity in their tissues. They actually regulate that by taking up other ions. So and and so that's what makes them great at great sources of dietary minerals that are often quite um, depleted in our terrestrial soil. So seaweeds can be a much greater source of um, things like zinc and iodine um, and that are often quite depleted in our Australian um, terrestrial soils and, and consequently vegetable crops. Mm. But so if, as you say, those if those same... Um, if those same metals are in high, too high concentration in the water column, then the seaweeds can bioaccumulate them. Mm. So if people wanted to go out and forage seaweed, is it, um, I mean, we've got quite an in-depth guide in the magazine with drawings and diagrams of what to do and where to do it. What would you recommend for people if they're interested in trying to incorporate some seaweed into their diet, but doing it in a way that's not going to cause problems to the ecosystems that they're coming from? Well, I guess one of the first things and most important things for for your listeners is to make sure that they're allowed to collect it from the areas that they're planning yeah. to. So they need to be um, privy to their local laws around collection in, of seaweeds in the particular uh, area that they're in. And yeah. this differs amongst states but also amongst municipalities within states so going to your local council or your local um, your state government uh, environmental protection agency to get an understanding of the um, regulations around seaweed collection is the, is the first thing. The second thing um, as we talked about in the article is to make sure that you you, you know without the um, availability of data at this point, I think it's best to take the precautionary principle and make sure you don't harvest around um, highly urbanised centres. So away from drains, river mouths, um, sewage outfalls, those sort of things. If it looks like the water is a bit yucky, then don't don't collect mm. your food from it. Yeah, yeah. Especially near the sewage. And then, yeah, absolutely. And, well, in, in some ways, the sewage, if it's just sewage, it's actually not a problem because the sewage, just pure sewage is generally putting out um, nutrients. The problem is that we also get metals coming down through our sewage systems. Mm, okay. And and so, you know, the nutrients themselves are not problematic. They're actually great. They get, you know, and you often get really nice lush seaweed growing around the sewage outfalls. Mm. Um, it, it, it's only a problem if they've got high levels of metal contamination and at this point in time we don't actually know how bad our Australian um, wastewater outfalls are in terms of the potential for contaminating sewage but that's some research that we've got in train so hopefully um, within the next year we'll have some answers to those questions. So I think in the first instance avoid it until yep. we've got some better data to know whether it's a problem or not. Mm. And what and particular? The sorry, go on. Is make, sorry, the third thing is to uh, make sure you um, tread lightly, and so don't mm. go ripping up entire plants. Try and um, harvest just a small piece of each plant, and and ideally, um, keeping in mind those tips around the growing regions of the um, 
species that we talked about in the article, for example, mm. to give them a chance to replenish. Yeah. So in the article, we've got really clear diagrams of exactly the points of where you can chop the plant and what to leave and what not to leave. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to look at that clearly before you go and have a start having a hack. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what's your favourite seaweed to collect and eat? So um, there's a couple and um, the one of the ones that we're starting to, I've got a, another student, Erin, who is um, trying to bring crayweed into aquaculture and crayweed is one of the species that we talked about in the article. Mm. So she's working when, in conjunction with um, some industry partners in Portfield Bay, the Victorian Shellfish Hatchery, and in particular to look at hatchery methods to actually grow the seaweed that we can then put it out to on lines in, in Port Phillip Bay and grow it. Um, okay. And so that crayweed's got um, broad applicability as a um, as a food source and we, we're only, I think, just beginning to scratch the surfaces. But we've um, made uh, soup stock with it. We've made um, seaweed chips with it where you can oven bake them and, mm. you know, base them in various things and coat them in sesame seeds and oven bake them or even Yum. coat them in corn flour and deep fry them and um, we've we even got some experimental beer happening with um, with crayweed on the go at the moment in collaboration with a friend of mine who works at um, Napoleon Beer in the Yarra Valley. Yeah right well, that sounds interesting. So but there's another couple of species that um, I'm really interested in because they they taste fantastic but the problem is that we um we don't know very much at all about their biology or their ecology. Right. So at the moment I'm keeping those two species under wraps, but I think they've got huge potential if we can um, work out a little bit more about um, how we can sustainably harvest them or more ideally probably culture them because they've both got relatively limited distribution. So if we go out there foraging them, we could pretty easily um, wipe out the populations pretty quickly. Mm, yeah, but, we don't want that. Uh, the, the taste trials that we've done with them are showing that, you know, they're, they're really um, quite fantastic and you know, and the nutritional information that's coming through about those is also looking like they're pretty interesting species. Mm, oh well, we'll keep, keep keep us posted about those ones. Yeah. yeah, but essentially, I mean, you know, foraging for seaweeds is not like foraging for mushrooms. You know, when you when you're foraging for mushrooms, you've got to be careful about what you can and can't eat, and have mm. a pretty good understanding of um, the the species that you're collecting because of the high propensity for toxicity. But seaweeds mm. are not like that. Seaweeds can be toxic when they accumulate um, metals and other contaminants, pesticides, herbicides, etc. But generally, seaweeds are, um, have low levels of toxicity for human consumption. So, mm. you know, if you're collecting from clean waters, you can pretty much eat any of the seaweed that's out there. Um, it's just some of it will taste better than others. But also understanding how to prepare it is really important. Mm. So and, what are some and, of the best and things? And for Australian species, we're still trying to work that out. Okay. I was going to say, what are the best <laughs> things to know about preparing it? Pickling? I've seen pickling is a bit of a way. Yeah. Is one way. Yeah, pickling it. You can dry it, you know, sun dry it or, or um, dehydrate it and 
um, then re you know for storage long term storage and then rehydrate it, which is what they do with a lot of species across Asia and on the northern hemisphere. Um, mm. In Europe, they do a lot of um, salt preserving and then you know rinsing and but you can use it in you know if if it's got a reasonable texture that it's not not going to be too chewy, you can just give it a rinse and throw it in a salad and or um, if it's a you know species that's a bit tougher, you could whack it in some pasta or cook it down, throw it in some soup, and you know I've I've pretty much been putting it in, giving it a go, putting it in everything I cook, and yeah. most cases it comes out okay, and you know in most cases it just acts as a, a flavour enhancer, and it, you know some sometimes it might be the the main player in a dish where the the dish is all about the seaweed, and you yeah. know you've got a um, Simmered seaweed salad, or something like that, where the the seaweed is the main player. But even in in Asian cuisine, more commonly, the seaweed is more of a dish um, to the main player that might be fish. Or so, for example, you know, I said I've been eating seaweed for breakfast, lunch, and dinner when I get here, and uh, you know, since I've been here, and in in most cases, that's a, it's a number of different species of seaweed in one dish, but you know, a relatively small volume on the side. A, you know, a salad or a, um, in a pickle or something to go on top of rice or yeah. in soup and these sorts of things. So, and I, I mean, I think for, for me, um, the key is about diversity too. So it makes sense to, you know, as with with all food, the, the more different species of seaweed you're eating, the better, I think. That we, we know from the um, preliminary work that we've done looking at the nutritional value of these Australian seaweeds, but also, you know, Northern Hemisphere commercial seaweeds as well, we know that they're not all the same. They have different nutritional profiles. Mm. And so it makes absolute sense to not just put all your, you know, all your eggs in one basket and just gorge on one particular species. You can overdo it. Um, yeah, um, yeah. If you have a little bit of a range of different species, you're much more likely to get better health benefits um, mm. and not get as bored with eating the same thing over and over again yeah, as well. Yeah. And what about um, using it in the garden? Do you yeah, do, you do absolutely. that? That's, yeah, absolutely. That's another fantastic way that you can get the benefits, the health benefits of eating of seaweeds without necessarily eating them yourself because because they're high rich in um, all those trace minerals they when you compost the seaweed down you can actually get that um, into your vegetables so you know I, through my research I do a lot of uh, you know we involve um, my research often involves collecting seaweed for various purposes and we use it in teaching and these sorts of things. So, you know, I, I might end up with a bucket of seaweed uh, after a day in the lab and rather than just throw that in the bin, I always take it home and um, put it in the garden or sometimes either put it directly on the garden or um, we have a one of those big rubbish bins, wheelie rubbish bins that we um, just fill with seaweed, you know, add seaweed bit continuously and then just fill with water and we actually use that to water our tomato plants and mm. that, it just makes for fantastic tomatoes in particular well we water hand water all the garden with that and yeah. but tomatoes in particular love it and okay. you know a fresh of red seaweed onto pea plants for example seems to produce fantastic peas so mm. i've actually got some work research that i'm doing in collaboration with um 
a Japanese colleague and, and a PhD student of his who spent some time in my lab um, earlier this year. And he is interested in um, dietary minerals in, in vegetables. And he was um, looking at uh, vegetables in Australia that were grown in different ways. So I'm yet to see those results, but I'm very keen to see it because he actually um, sampled some of the vegetables from our gardens and some of our neighbours that are using mm. the same soil. So I'm interested to see whether our our um, seaweed mulch and seaweed tea is uh, showing up in the in the mineral contents of our vegetables as well. So that's, that's a work in progress as well. Yeah. Well, that's a great thing. I mean, if you can be adding those nutrients in to the soil and then getting the benefit of them through the fruit and veggies. And again, making, so you, you, in some parts of Australia, you can collect bags of um, rack or the seaweed that's washed up on the beach. Yeah. And um, so in, in some areas you, you might be allowed to collect, you know, one shopping bag per day, or but there are differences in regulations. So again, knowing what your local regulations are helps to, um, be able to do that in a way that's not going to get you into trouble, but there are also yeah. those regulations that are designed around sustainability for different areas. So, yeah. So when you put it in the water, do you do you need to rinse all the salt water off it, or is it fine just to put it straight in as it is? Um, well, generally, in in the case that I've been using it in the lab, generally it's been through a rinse process already. So I just bring it home in a bucket and yeah, okay. throw it straight into the into the bin but if we've um uh, if we're running low on seaweed we will occasionally collect some from the the rack we we are allowed to collect from some areas in our municipality and so we might go down and collect a bucket from the beach and in that case we'll give it a rinse rinse the sand off in particular um mm. and, a, and a salt and then throw it in so but it doesn't seem to be um, if, if it's got a lot of salt water then it's um it's probably not as fantastic, but generally speaking, it, you're mostly giving it a rinse to get rid of the sand more than the high levels of salt because mm. it, you know, it's often washed off with a bit of rain and that sort of thing anyway. Yeah, and I guess it depends on how often you're putting it on there. If you're putting it on there all yeah. the time, then it would accumulate. And... Yeah, absolutely. And so would you just put it through the compost as well, mix it in they with put all it the other things? The compost, yeah. We do that as well. We feed it to our chooks. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, so often, um, yeah, and particularly if we've got, um, you know, any waste from dinner or whatever, then that goes straight into the chook bowl. And oh. so, um, or sometimes if I bring it home from the lab, I'll, I'll chop up some of it finely and throw it in with the chook food, you know, with the, the food scraps that we feed the chooks. And what we seem to notice is when the when the chooks eat are eating a lot of seaweed, they get really lovely yellow yolky eggs. Mm. So, not green eggs. Um, <laughs> not green no. eggs and ham. <laughs> That'd be a marketable thing, wouldn't it? Then. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I guess I imagine then there'd be some of those nutrients in the eggs as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know the. Um, the fatty acids coming through. The the I suspect that the the you know bright yellow that we're seeing in the eggs is probably from the beta carotene, which is the orange pigment that makes carrots orange. It's okay. also quite abundant in, in a lot of different seaweeds. So I suspect and then there are other similar pigments that are associated with um 
different seaweeds. So I suspect that's what's um, giving the eggs their colour, but I haven't looked at it. So is seaweed something that we're going to see growing? Like is it a sort of growing sustainable industry for Australia? That Yeah, I think so. I think there's um, – I think the the time is right. There's a lot of interest. Uh, and at the end of the day, we've got a burgeoning global population and not enough food to feed them. So we have to mm. look for alternative ways to feed our population. And um, – I think it makes sense for seaweeds to be uh, a part of that solution, not the sole solution, obviously, but it, they can be an important part of the solution. And, you know, if, if it's done right, um, production of seaweeds can be really sustainable and, uh, you know, they don't use freshwater inputs, for example. We can, we can grow them in our ocean without additional nutrients, without additional water. So, you know, you're immediately taking away two of the main problems associated with um, terrestrial um, agriculture about putting nutrients into the system, artificial nutrients and, and water into the system, um, or, or sorry, competing with water reserves for, for other purposes. And so, but, you know, there are also uh, potential negative impacts of seaweed aquaculture. So we do need to um, understand how to go about it in a, in a sustainable way and make sure that, you know, if we're going to do it on large scale, that we don't stuff up the rest of the ocean along the way. Mm. Well, a couple of examples I've come across, the growing seaweed out of a waste product. So the... Um, Pacific Reef Fisheries in Queensland where they've got a huge fish farm and then all the waste of that fish farm is being filtered through seaweed which is causing the seaweed to grow at a phenomenal phenomenal rate and then they're using that seaweed as a fertiliser for... Yeah, th- so basically so. seaweed... Seaweeds grow on nutrients and animals make nutrients, put nutrients out in their poo. So... Um, Seaweeds will grow on fish poo or, you know, any sort of animal poo because essentially all they are is nutrients. And if we can um, break down people's preconceptions about um, growing seaweeds on on poo, then, you know, you've got a viable system. And there's a Mm. lot of work being done around the world. It's called integrative... integrated multi-trophic aquaculture where you're integrating different trophic levels in an aquaculture system. So you might have mm. something like salmon, um, for example, in down in Tassie that are, um, a lot of nutrients are put into the system for the fish food for the salmon and then the salmon are excreting waste products out into the water. So you've got nutrients that are coming from the terrestrial system into the marine system via food and then um, the, the fish poo. And then uh, they can be drawn down in um, by the seaweeds growing in conjunction with the, the salmon farms potentially and also um, filter feeding animals such as mussels or oysters. And, and so integrating the different levels, different trophic levels um, in an aquaculture system I think has got huge potential to be the way forward for more sustainable um, food production. Mm. and reduce some of the impacts of some of the negative impacts of farming salmon in our oceans mm. and so we're actually working with um, tassel and um, 
some colleagues at IMAS and CSIRO, we're looking to start doing some work in, in Tasmania to try and see what we can grow in conjunction with the, the muscle, uh, sorry, the salmon farms to, um, to do precisely that, draw down the nutrients and reduce those environmental impacts, mm. as well as reducing seaweed at the same time. Yeah, that's no, great. It's a bit like an aquaponics system too, where you've got the yeah, vegetables growing the from the yep. fish wastes. And yeah, ideally yep. you're kind of solving two problems at the one time and yeah, creating yeah, a synergy. Yeah, it's essentially there. the same sort of process, just in the ocean. Mm. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, I've learnt a lot from the article you've written, and yeah, it's now the all the seaweeds you go out and look on the rocks, and suddenly they all you like, oh, that's that one and. That's what I can do with this and that. So it's great. It opens up a whole new world of possibilities of because, yeah, we just sort of see what's on land and often we forget that there is another whole world under the ocean. I think generally in Australia people have a pretty um, negative perception of seaweed because most of most people's interaction with seaweed is in the stinking stuff that washes up on the beach rather yeah. than... You know, when you stick your head under the water and you see all the amazing colours and the amazing structures and branching patterns and, I mean, seaweeds are really beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, a few of us get that opportunity to really see the seaweeds in their prime when they're growing and fresh and alive and, you know, and actually um, yeah. see them for their beauty as well as their huge potential. So I'd en encourage your readers to... Uh, get out there with a mask and snorkel and stick their head under the water and mm. um, and take a look at the seaweeds with a different set of lenses. Yeah, definitely. All right, Alicia, well, thanks a lot for your time and sharing all your knowledge with us. No worries. Nice to talk to you again, Robin. Okay. Thank you. You have been listening to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. For more on seaweed, including Alicia's school seaweed foraging guide, check out issue 9 of the magazine, available when you subscribe at www.pipmagazine.com.au. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time.